I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by IEEE's senior member, David Witkowski, who serves as the co-chair of the deployment working group at IEEE Future Networks. We discuss evolutions in the low Earth orbit satellite connectivity space and what the current state of the industry tells us about the role LEOs can play in closing connectivity gaps, as well as the challenges that need to be solved around scalability, orbital debris, and more. David, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So um, before we get started, we're going to talk about low Earth orbit satellites today. But why don't you give me a bit of background on the IEEE and your work there? Yeah, so the IEEE is the international organization that oversees um, activities in electrical engineering and supports members uh, around the world. Um, People are probably most familiar with IEEE as the organization that sets the standard for Wi-Fi. So the 802.11 standard is an IEEE standard, um, but they have a lot of standards that uh, show up in everybody's lives. And I work with the Future Networks Initiative, uh, which is uh, actually now known as the Future Networks Technical Community. And uh, I am the co-chair of the deployment working group so uh, specifically, we deal with the question of practicality of communications technology and how it gets deployed into systems that provide connectivity for people around the world. Okay, awesome. So I understand that as part of that work, you've been looking into uh, the practicality, perhaps, and otherwise of low Earth orbit satellites. Um, so why don't you tell me a bit about that work? Why were you particularly interested in LEO, um, LEO satellites? What's your, and what's your overall assessment on, on the state of LEO at this point? Yeah, so low Earth orbit uh, networks have all, I mean, satellite in general has always been this sort of holy grail of communications in in that, of course, uh, being able to deploy a network over uh, an entire planet takes a lot of investment, a lot of work. How do you do that simply? Well, one way to do it would certainly be to do it from space. And I've, over the course of my career, um, been involved with or talked to uh, in companies or people who have been working in companies that have been trying to do this. And, and it has been one of those things that always is sort of just around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, in recent years, we've actually seen it become more realistic. Uh, and so it is, I think we're getting there. There have been a number of false starts as there always are in communications. Um, but, you know, in general, I mean, space is hard, Right. And it's it's not the kind of thing that you can stick somebody in a truck and tell them to go fix uh, a cell site. So getting it to orbit requires a lot of effort. Keeping it in orbit requires effort. Keeping it powered. And of course, it has to work the first time. Otherwise, you've put a lot of energy into putting something in the orbit that now has no value. Um, you know, of course, Starlink is probably the most recent example of success, although AST's recent space mobile uh, effort with um, an actual satellite to smartphone connection was uh, a milestone. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, the question is, is can that network be scaled or can those networks be scaled? That's probably the thing that we need 
to resolve in the short term. We, I can, I can demonstrate a call from space and make it work uh, under ideal conditions. And now, is this going to work in all cases? Is really the question that needs to be addressed. Yeah, let's stick with that for a moment, because that does seem to be one of the real challenges is scaling these networks, making them affordable both to run and mm -hmm. to actually mm -hmm. subscribe to. It's not necessarily a low uh, a low price broadband that you're getting with, with a lot of these low Earth orbit satellite services, a Starlink you mentioned in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so how, how have you been looking at that scalability issue? So initially, the value of the Space Constellation Communications Network has really been showing up primarily, of course, in the rural areas and underdeveloped nations where uh, connectivity is not available. I mean, if you live in the Northern Territories of Canada, parts of Alaska, or anywhere north of uh, 20 miles, 25 miles north of the U.S.-Canadian border, uh, you typically have struggled to find connectivity. Uh, and so I think that what we're really seeing is this, is a huge uptake in Starlink as, mm -hmm. as a solution um, to the point where in some areas of California where I, uh, my company resides, um, I know our Starlink cells in my area are oversubscribed. There are, there are no more available subscriptions, but people will drive hundreds of miles to buy a Starlink in another area and then bring it back here. Uh, which, of course, uh, then sort of depreciates the re or, or uh, decimates the resources of the existing subscribers in that area, and, and the system yeah. will, will now have to keep up with that. So, um, fortunately, we see Starlink two coming online, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, soon, and that will quadruple the aperture of the satellites, which which will lead to a better performance. And uh, so, I think Starlink is working to keep up with that level of demand. Uh, yeah. You know, but to your point, right? I mean, in the past, we've done this with Iridium or Global Star. Those were those were great until they were suddenly very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you had an Iridium phone, or or then then yeah, it was great as long as maybe the government was paying for it or your employer was paying for it, and you had to have it. Yeah. Um, but, but when you're paying a few dollars a minute for a self for a phone call, then you know, <laughs> you're going to keep those calls short. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, just a couple minutes ago deployments outside of the United States. So, um, right. and I do want to talk to you a little bit about what we are doing here in the United States. But um, can you talk to me about some uh, low Earth orbit satellite deployments that have uh, either abroad or, or it could be here in rural environments that you think um, are working particularly well or are, you know, set the example of why we need this type of technology in certain environments? I mean, I, I think when you, for example, when you look, and I keep talking about Starlink because, of course, they're they're yeah. the obvious they're the obvious player in this. I mean, you you have other uh, players in this. I mean, you've got you know Jeff Bezos has a space effort. Um, you know, you've got the Blue Origin and such like that 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 are out. And and those are OneWeb. Uh, those are interesting. And of, and of course, I know that some like disaster workers. Um, I worked some years ago with a with a team from Cisco that responded to disasters and literally sending what they called a nerve NERV truck into places like Haiti after the earthquake. And they would rely on a variety of connectivity options uh, to get data in and out of, in of that, out of that operation and provide connectivity in places where the infrastructure had just been destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, now, but those are small compared to to Starlink. So I apologize that this is not a this is not a commercial for Starlink. It's just because they're the obvious choice to talk about because they've 
they've probably been the one that's scaled the most. So when you look at that disaster response um, and what technologies those disaster responders are choosing, of course, Starlink is the logical choice because it has the most capacity. Um, it has a large number of satellites in, in orbit. You're likely to have enough satellites above you at any given time to get a connection. Um, so, you know, we, we think about what happened in Ukraine, for example, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Ukrainian military needed connectivity. Um, you know, Starlink responded by providing those terminals. And, um, you know, that was of great value to them because data and communications, of course, is part of the warfighters toolkit and is necessary for uh, for military operations in the 21st century. So I, I think in in any area of the of the planet, except maybe the North and South Pole, I, I think Starlink makes a ton of sense. And I know that the constellation is beginning to push north uh, to to those higher latitudes as well. And so I would expect to see, I was just talking to a colleague last week who was working in Alaska on a Starlink project uh, using that uh, constellation for, for something that they were doing. Yeah, I mean, that that certainly seems like an ideal environment. Um, so to that point, then, the United States, as you know, is spending several billion dollars to build out broadband to the mm -hmm. remaining locations that don't have it and to make it affordable for people yep. um, and took a, you know, a, a made a distinct point to make it a fiber focused program sure. um, and to really, uh, you know, I would say relegate satellite to where it's needed. Um, specifically with the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, Starlink had initially won uh, awards and then those were kind of rescinded um, in favor of, uh, you know, fiber and other technologies. So I'm just curious about your uh, thoughts on the U.S. approach to closing the digital divide. Um, and I guess secondarily, do you think low Earth orbit satellite uh, remains a viable business uh, as we build out fiber to the remaining uh, locations that don't have it in the U.S.? That's a really interesting question. Um, certainly, yes, the U.S. Is, has had a very fiber-centric mindset. Um, in fact, I would argue that it is uh, less fiber-centric than it was maybe a, a year or two ago. And you know, we filed comments on some FCC dockets to that effect, which was to say that Yes, fiber is an interesting technology. Certainly, it has value. If you can get fiber to a location, it, it is a good technology to use. Um, you know, I'm informed by personal experience on this, which is when I got fiber at both my home and my office, my home install took five hours. Uh, the technician had to climb a couple poles, do a splice, run a line, go under my house, when I, when I had my office done, it took them two days because the first day they had a problem with the fiber and it had to be fixed. Um, I just recently did a fiber network for a client where something occurred in the, cro in the crosslink um, where I had to go back. So, uh, so two businesses and two days for the install. So that's an expensive thing. And if you're going to do that, multiply it across the millions of households in the United States, you're talking about a significant investment in technology, whereas um, some technologies like 5G fixed wireless access may actually be cheaper. And it's notable that a colleague of mine in the IEEE who is a professor in Sweden noted to me that the Northern European countries or the Scandinavian countries are moving away from fiber because it's very expensive and they see it uh, as a better use of 
taxpayer and government dollars to use wireless technologies versus fiber because fiber tends to be a very expensive thing. And um, I've worked in the fiber industry uh, at some points in my career. And um, I do, I am doing a lot of work right now with uh, the state of California, the NTIA on the rollout of the infrastructure funds that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. particularly in the bead funding, which is the last mile, last yard funding. Um, It is going to be expensive uh, to that extent. And I do argue that other technologies make sense. Now, certainly Starlink had trouble with the art off. I, I would argue to a certain extent because of the way that I described people going out of their way to buy Starlink terminals and bring them into areas that were already overloaded, that will reduce the performance of that cell. And then therefore, yes, they're not going to meet their performance metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it testifies to the popularity of the system and maybe Starlink um, was, I'm not sure if they were fairly or unfairly penalized for that. And I'm not in a position to comment on, on the art off uh, decision-making process, but to a certain extent, I would argue that perhaps the network wasn't performing as well as they had said it was, but also in some areas it was probably very oversubscribed in which case. Yeah. So the, the answer is, is I think, to build connectivity to everybody, to connect the unconnected, as the IEEE has a connecting the unconnected organization that I do some work with, all technologies must be brought to bear on that, whether they be wired or wireless, fiber, satellite. I mean, we have a toolkit that we should use, and the toolkit will, the right tool is appropriate for the job at hand. Um, Many people come to us um, to come to my company and ask the question, well, what is the solution to broadband? And I'd say, well, where are you trying to build the broadband? Yeah, I can't answer that until I ask the question. Right, right. And um, yeah, and certainly as, as far as uh, the latest House hearing, which was uh, yesterday at the moment that we're speaking, which will be a couple of weeks ago by the time this episode goes up, but uh, the ad- chief administrator of the NTIA is, is certainly aware that every state is going to want to use a mix of technologies um, and is just trying to get fiber, uh, where it seems the U.S. is trying to get fiber uh, as far as it will go and understands there's going to be other tech in, in the mix. Um, as far as Starlink and Ardoff, yeah, that seems like a separate and specific uh, issue. Um, yeah. uh, and the Starlink position will also get more interesting, as you said earlier, uh, as Amazon uh, makes its way to the low Earth orbit. <laughs> Too. My hope is is that the NTIA does see their way to bringing these other technologies into the allowable mix. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly the, the federal funds account is very is fiber specific, right? You yeah. can only use fiber for FFA. Uh, NTIA bead, I think they want fiber if they can get it, but they're willing to accept non fiber proposals. Now we'll see how that how those play out in the application. Um, but having attended several of the NTIA roadshow events uh, with the California Department of Technology and the CPC, um, I've, I've asked this question a couple times to say, so is this only fiber? And, and the answer is no, it isn't only fiber. Right. But having done an application for middle mile under the Infrastructure Act and having worked on an application I can tell you that there's a lot of language in there which would lead you to believe that they want fiber. 
Right. Yes. I, I think they certainly want fiber um, and are going to have to amend for uh, other types of technologies as the states request waivers and put together their plans. So it's going to require the, the continued engagement, I think, of stakeholders like yourself uh, who are saying, hey, don't forget about uh, Leo and other. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what the challenges are for this industry besides scalability, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and you know, I, am anxious about how much we're putting in the sky and the, yeah. the challenges that result from that. So talk to me about what you've uncovered as some of the challenges for low earth orbit satellite, um, and how we should go about solving them. Well, certainly, I mean, just the infra, just the engineering and infrastructure that goes into launching is, is notable. Um, yeah. I live in an area where I can see Vandenberg launches, um, and so it's uh, I didn't know the number of Vandenberg launches that go off is is uh, sizable. Mm -hmm. um, now I, I think you know being able to recover some of that material and not have it just drop into the ocean is is good. Um, it's a better use of dollars and and better for the environment. I also would argue that. Um, you know, some organizations, I mean, we've seen, like, for example, I think SPIN, right, has talked about the ability to do some launching and reduce fuel consumption. I think that's really interesting. If we can get to the point where we can deorbit uh, either failed or aged platforms, then, then I think that's going to be really important. And I know the FCC has started mandating that deorbit must be part of the planning you can't just leave it in space and presume it'll eventually re-enter the atmosphere. So, um, and I think that as we see more advancement in solar panel technology, that will certainly help. Um, you know, semiconductors, of course, continue to evolve as, as Moore's Law doesn't seem to have run out of steam quite yet. Uh, hopefully that <laughs> continues to go. So, but eventually, I mean, the problem that you have with space, of course, is that what you put up there is the technology of the day you put it up. Yeah. So if you launch a satellite into orbit in 2023, and it has a 15-year lifespan, well, eventually it's going to be pretty old, and I can climb a tower and replace a radio. I can't go up into space and replace a radio. So you... We have to be forward thinking in our technology in space. And that's probably the big challenge is predicting where we're going to go. Yeah. We, we could potentially be able to do, you know, 5G calls from space, for example. Um, but 6G is seven years away. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get all those satellites up there, 6G will already be there and, and it'll be a, a kind of a down rev technology. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah. So to I guess to that end, like our there's only so much you can do about that, right? Um, first of there's all. Really, there's no there's nothing you can do about it except to, you know, if you have a crystal ball. But uh, right, exactly. Mind. Get some psychics in the mix. I don't know how many psychics yeah, you guys are yeah. employing at IEEE. I, I, have, I, have, uh, I have very few psychics on my staff. So. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, that's one thing we can start to work on. Um, but what about like I mean, policies work almost yeah, in sure. backwards time, like a backwards motion. Yeah, about that as well because <laughs> yeah. it's a regulated it's a regulated space too so right. there's, so there's that so space space is hard and regulations are hard so you've got several things that drive against innovation in space because you are dealing with a shared medium i mean space is is not uh territorial we have to yeah. cooperate with each other on a global scale and um, governments are careful about things because i think they don't want to be 
responsible if something falls on someone's head, <laughs> nor do they want other countries to be throwing things up there that are going to fall on their citizens' heads. And we, we have seen some poor behavior by other national entities in their use of space. And, and so I, I think we want to set a good example for, um, for other countries in that regard. And so I think the United States is being careful to set that example, which is encouraging, but it also does mean that our space technology companies are going to be constrained by that regulatory paradigm. Okay, one final question for you on direct-to-device communications. I'd love your thoughts on that emerging space and whether you think there is a future for that to help close additional connectivity gaps. Certainly, I think that um, there is an opportunity for that. I Again, the question is scale, right? Yeah. Um, when, you, when you think about the physics of talking from orbit and you're, you're receiving signals from the ground, imagine how many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of users you see at any given time. As you fly over a city, um, if, if you could see like the San Francisco Bay Area, yeah. I mean, there are three, four million people and, and your cell is going to include all those potential users. If they're all trying to talk to you at the same time, um, I don't know if you're a parent, but I, I am, I'm a father. And, and I can tell you when there's a bunch of kids screaming at you, you, you have a hard time understanding what they're all saying. Well, a satellite has to be able to do that. So I think the issue is, is that, sure, you can demonstrate a ground-to-orbit call. Now, can you do that for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users? Um, with, um, you know, Apple has their satellite SOS, or their, their emergency SOS, which is a really interesting system. In fact, I, I know the guy that heads that group up, um, heads up that group. He okay. is a smart guy. I mean, he's a really smart guy, right? And and they have um, they have built a system that works, but it also takes several minutes for that text to go through, and it can't be a multimedia thing. It's it's essentially a a, a sentence or so. Yeah, and so. You can do that at scale if you limit the amount of information, but you're going to be resending that message over and over to make sure it got through. Yeah. And so there's a lot of overhead in a, in a ground-to-orbit system. And the question is, is whether the technology can keep up with that. And so I'll be very interested to see how this AST project scales, yeah. uh, whether that can be done for general purpose use. Awesome. As will I, as will we. Um, so thank you so much, David, for taking time to talk with us about all of your work and your, your research into low Earth orbit. It's been really fantastic talking with you today. Thank you, Nicole. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you again, David, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landriau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.